If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you're new to Covenant Presbyterian Church, it's typically our practice to preach through books of the Bible, and we have been working on uh, this wonderful portion of God's Word, the Gospel of John. And uh, this morning we're going to be focusing on chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. If you don't have a Bible but you'd like to follow along, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. And feel free to take that and find your way to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. If you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's Word, being reminded that this is God's inspired and unerring and life-giving Word. Let us give it our full attention. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. Let's pray. And now, Father, we ask you that you would bless the reading and proclamation of your word, that it would take root in us. Father, if we need correction, correct us. If we need conviction, convict us. Lord, we need instruction. Please instruct us. We need hope, Lord. Please give us hope. For the doubter, for the skeptic, Lord, grant that they would believe in you today. For the one who knows you but has strayed from you, bring them back to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, it is the final week of Jesus' life. And as we've mentioned before, here in chapter 12, right around the midway point of the gospel... John now slows time way down. And the second half of this gospel is all condensed into viewing one single week in the life of Jesus. Actually, fewer than seven days total um, will be looked at here. It's Passover, the third Passover of Jesus' public ministry, and the city is buzzing with talk about Jesus. For all kinds of reasons, but most supremely, the city's buzzing with talk about Jesus is people want to know if he's going to show up for Passover. And the reason why they want to know that is because two things primarily. One, word has gotten out about this incredible miracle he performed, raising a dead man from the grave. But secondly, Jesus' enemies among the religious authorities have more or less placed a price on his head. And word has gone out that if you see Jesus, you are to report him immediately. And so everybody's wondering, is he going to come? Is he going to show up? And the drama is heightened by 
by all of this that's going on? Well, Jesus does come to Jerusalem because what he will do there is the whole purpose of his coming into the world to begin with. The glory and divine reality of Jesus will be confirmed. His kingship will be confirmed in this blessed, holy irony upon a cross of crucifixion. So as our having come, Jesus now enters the city of Jerusalem one final time. And John will take special care in recording some of Jesus' final teachings as he speaks to his disciples, even recording that wonderful, what we oftentimes call the, the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. But after we see him teach more and give more instruction and pray and spend time with his disciples in these final few days, then... John records events moving in a deeply darker direction as the wicked violence and rebellion against God comes to light and we will see human sin in all of its fury. And here we see that in the sight of multiplied thousands during a time of religious solemnity and at the heights of national pride, Jesus entered the holy city as the shepherd king, the savior of the world, David's greater son. And we can see that Jesus was the misunderstood king, he was the messianic king, and he was and remains the worldwide king. But he was misunderstood. Jesus was misunderstood by the people closest to him, his disciples, his family members, and of course, also by those who weren't so close. He was certainly misunderstood by his enemies. And in verse 12, we see once again the realism of John's account. Remember that Jesus has now raised Lazarus from the dead, and the way that people respond is the way that you would expect people to respond if someone calls a man out of a tomb and he comes out of a tomb. Um, That event didn't just happen and then John moves on to other things. People aren't letting go of this any more than you or I would if we saw such a thing happen. In fact, since that moment, crowds have been flooding to Bethany, and now they've followed Jesus from Bethany to Jerusalem, because after all, this is a man who speaks a word, and a dead man gets out of a tomb. No wonder all of these multitudes are now gathering around Jesus as he walks towards the city of Jerusalem. The raising of Lazarus was a big, big deal, just as it would be for us. And for many of the Jews in that region who had seen Jesus' miracles, they'd witnessed his compassion, they had heard his teaching that carried with it an insightfulness and an authority that they had never heard from any of their rabbis, the verdict for them was clear. This must be the Messiah. This must be the King. And the raising of Lazarus was the final spark that set this fire of adulation ablaze. Now, everything in verses 13, 14, and 15 sets the stage for acknowledging the kingship, the divine royalty of Jesus. But there's also a problem. And the problem is that, as it will turn out, there is this great chasm between what the people wanted and expected from Jesus as their king and the king that they got in Jesus. Look again at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
Now, what's important to keep in mind here is that this was a time of heightened stress upon Jerusalem. Um, Remember, they are under the thumb of Rome. Now, Rome has allowed them to keep, for the most part, their religious traditions and their religious practices. Um, They even have a king who's really not a Hebrew. He's descended from a long line that kind of branches out of Syria. But, and, and he's a wicked man and a corrupt man, but they, they let him have a king. But he's just a client of Rome. But, but, but the religious leaders have found a sort of comfortable equilibrium. They've got the temple. It's intact. Now, it's the second temple because foreign invaders had destroyed the first temple. But now they've got a second temple. They're allowed to function as religious leaders. They've got the respect. They've got the office. They've got all of they, that they need to function well. It's not that they like the Romans. It's just that they found a system that works for them. And now everybody's nervous. Rome thinks about past insurrections and wonders, man, with all of these thousands of people descending upon Jerusalem at a time of national fervor and religious solemnity, and now you've got this guy Jesus who's who's making strange claims and people are saying outrageous things about them. Are we, are we getting ready to have another insurrection? And the religious leaders are thinking the same thing. They're afraid of the same thing. Because if there is an insurrection, it's going to end the same way as all the others have. Even the more successful ones were ultimately stamped down. And they might lose the temple once again. All of this is colliding right there in that moment as Jesus makes his way, thronged by thousands towards the city of Jerusalem. Now, the city of Jerusalem at this time had a regular population of about 50,000, so think Harrisonburg. And of course, not all of those people could actually fit within the city. They would live right on the outskirts. Well, during Passover, that population, as pilgrims from around the whole region, the diaspora would come in, that population would go from 50,000 to 120,000, and some estimates all the way up to a quarter of a million people would descend upon the little town of Jerusalem. And all of this, combined with religious zeal and nationalistic fervor, a man being declared king, is happening right there. Now, more on the palm branches in just a second. But take careful note of what the people are shouting as they usher Jesus or accompany Jesus into the city. They're saying, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna can be literally rendered, save us now. Save us now. Now, that's a great cry for people to direct towards Jesus. The problem is that this, on their part, was not a cry of salvation from sin. It was a cry of deliverance from earthly oppressors, in their case, Rome. It was about their national pride. It was about their religious identity, not about the salvation of their souls. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now these words are important. They come from Psalm 118. Now Psalm 118 was a messianic psalm. That is, it was a psalm written prophetically to point us towards the King, the great everlasting King, the Messiah of God's people. In one season, Psalm 118 formed a part of the liturgy for the Feast of Tabernacles. We've learned about the Feast of Tabernacles as we've worked through John. That great feast wherein they would remember God's presence among his people through the tabernacle. And then in another season, the one that they are in now, Psalm 118 would be used in the liturgy for Passover. And here's how it would work. Long before this, 
long before the people's exile into Babylon, which took place in the 500s B.C. So before that, Psalm 118 was used by the people once a year specifically when the king would make a a, a triumphal entry into the city. Every year, this became a practice, I'm not sure when, but the king of Israel, whoever it happened to be, each year would have a a kind of a, a, a triumphal entry into the city, oftentimes sitting on the colt of a donkey. And he would be welcomed in by the shouts of the people, and the priests would wait at the temple, and they would shout out from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so you can see the significance of this. The crowds there assembling, not the chief priests, but the crowds now were saying, of Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew what they were doing. They'd heard Psalm 118 used at their most holy times. They knew of, of how it was used in the pre-exilic time of, to, to, to celebrate the king's presence among them. They knew all of this, and now... They were applying it to Jesus. Their hopes were sky high. The one who had demonstrated such mighty power in raising a dead man from the grave is coming into Jerusalem, and he's doing so at Passover. Certainly he would use his power, this power to raise the dead, to march against Rome, to restore Israel's national pride and independence. And this expectation of the crowds was graphically confirmed in their waving of palm branches. And here's why. For almost two centuries up to that point, palm branches had become a sign of Jewish national identity, national pride. And where it was really established was about 150 years prior to this, you might have heard of the the Maccabean Revolution. Well, there were two brothers, Judas Maccabee and Simon Maccabee. And they raised an army. They they led an insurrection that was successful because at that time the Syrians were in control of Jerusalem. The Maccabees come up, they kick the Syrians out, they raise a successful army, they drive them out, and in part because they make an alliance with Rome who helps them. And as Simon Maccabee was brought into the city after the Syrians were finally driven out, the people wave palm branches as he comes in their deliverer, the conqueror of the Syrians, the one who has given Jerusalem back to the people, restoring their religious identity, restoring their national pride. And now as Jesus comes in, what do we see? Palm branches. This is going to be Simon Maccabee 2.0. And this time he's going to get rid of the Romans. But in rather short order, the people's expectations will come crashing down as Jesus does not rally the people to a military solution to the Roman problem. Indeed, he rather meekly will turn himself over to his persecutors so that the shouts of Hosanna on Sunday will become shouts of crucify on Friday. But before we shake our heads at them, How often do we try to shape Jesus into conformity to our own demands and our own expectations, to make him the king that we want, whether or not we envision him as the king that we need? We enlist him to be the chaplain of our causes. Now, I'm not saying that we should not invoke the Lord 
when it comes to things that in his word he clearly is committed to. Please don't misunderstand. My problem is, is that we oftentimes are very used to invoking the name of Jesus to justify things that we are committed to that he is not necessarily committed to. Or we invoke his name to justify methods that he himself would never endorse. How often often do we assume that he's on our side in every case? Of course, there is a wonderfully blessed sense in which the Lord is on our side. He is our Savior, after all. He's He's redeemed us from the curse of sin. God is for us. That is true. But that's not the same thing as Jesus endorsing every cause I commit myself to. Or that he sides with me in the way that I go about the things that have come to matter to me. He doesn't endorse my every method. He doesn't endorse my every motive. He doesn't become the chaplain of my every priority. I wonder wonder what would have been our response to Jesus that week in Jerusalem had we been among the crowd thinking, finally, the restoration of our national pride, finally, the the restoration of our uh, religious zeal, finally our independence, only to see him days later being ripped to shreds by Roman soldiers. Disappointment. How often have we been disappointed with Jesus? The circumstance didn't work out the way we wanted to. The heartbreak came. The genuine source of real loss occurred, and we wonder, where was Jesus? Where was he? He didn't write the script I wanted him to write. Things didn't go the way I longed for them to go. I'll never forget this because it struck me in that moment with such graphic, literally graphic in in nature. Um, This would have been in the late 1980s or early 1990s. I was in a Christian bookstore, and I had glorious hair, and um, <laughs> was feathered and lethal. Um, I, you remember Christian bookstores, right? They, you would go to a Christian bookstore if you were looking for a really bad Christian book, or delicious Bible bars, or that kind of thing. Well, anyway, I was in a Christian bookstore, and there was a new book by a very well-known Christian author, and the name of the book was Disappointment with God. And there was a sticker on the front cover of the book from the publisher and the sticker guaranteed 100% satisfaction with that book or your money would be returned to you now catch the irony there you can be disappointed with God but by golly you will not be disappointed with this publisher (laughs) um, or your money back well if you haven't figured it out yet Jesus is going to disappoint you There are things that you will want that he doesn't provide. There are losses to suffer and crosses to bear. There will be consequences to sin. There will be conflicts to endure. And you will wonder why Jesus has let you down in that moment. And in those moments, we need to consider what kind of king Jesus is. Martin Luther wrote that it's impossible for the human heart without crosses and tribulations, to think upon God. We have to remember this because the crosses and tribulations that come to us 
come to us by the hand of our king. If he is the king at all, then he is the king both of our blessings and our calamities. And since he is the good king, since we can trust his goodness without doubt, because he is the king who left his throne to be like us, to die in our place, so since he is the good king, we can trust that he is designing our good no less in our trials than he is in our blessings. And it is in those moments that we have to ask ourselves, what king am I demanding Jesus to be? What kind of king am I expecting, am I demanding him to be? And if there is a conflict behind, but between my expectation of the king that Jesus needs to be and the king that Jesus actually is, if there's a conflict there, then I have to adjust my perspective. Am I expecting him to conform to me, in which case he's no king at all? Or am I orienting my heart in such a way that I will hail him as king on Sunday and on Friday. Well, this king, King Jesus, is not only so commonly misunderstood, but he is also the messianic king. Look there again at verse 14. Because in this simple little verse, Jesus is described as performing two highly symbolic acts which correspond to what the crowds are proclaiming about him, that he's king. First, he selects a young donkey, and then second, he sits upon it. Now, for us, we'd say, that's peculiar. But that was charged with significance for these first century Jewish people. The selection of a young donkey is a key factor in understanding the nature of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. The selection of a donkey over a horse of war was in no way meant to undermine the public recognition that Jesus was the messianic king. Certainly, the horse, a horse fitted for war especially, remained a a symbol of might. But, as one scholar puts it, quote, mules and donkeys have a much earlier and longer heritage as symbols of royalty. As the best and most Reliable of all pack animals, donkeys became something of a status symbol in the ancient world, much like they are today. Um, kidding. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine, but that was the truth. One New Testament scholar, his name is Kenneth Way, he wrote a lengthy study on donkeys in the ancient Near East. I mean, aren't you glad there are people who do that? I mean, you're not necess- you don't necessarily want it to be your kid, but I mean, we're glad that 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 there are scholars who have dedicated themselves to understanding donkeys in the ancient Near East. Now, the reason why this is important is because Kenneth Way has described the donkey, quote, as the Mercedes-Benz of the biblical world. So, I point all of this out because sometimes it's been said, well, Jesus rode in on a donkey to show that he was was not some great king. And precisely the opposite is the case. For the Jewish witnesses that day, him riding upon a young donkey was confirmation that he was the king. He was the king. It would have been understood by them that all that they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, Jesus by selecting a donkey and sitting upon that donkey, was standing in a long line of Jewish royal tradition. 
and doing likewise, doing what past kings had done. He was, in other words, saying, you're right, I am the king. Now, in verse 15, John follows this up to drive home the point by quoting from Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah, one of the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament, as we're getting close to that intertestamental period, made prophecies concerning the Messiah. And so some 500 years before this happened, Zechariah is saying this to the people of Israel, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. John specifically says, Jesus selected that donkey to fulfill prophecy. Now the kings of Israel were to be godly, humble men much in contrast to the violent pagan kings of the nations. And perhaps this is why God had ordained that his kings would do things like ride in on a donkey rather than come in on a symbol of military might. Now make no mistake, these kings of Israel were at times commanded even to go to war with the enemies of God's people. But primarily they were to be known as godly men, men who were gentle, men who were humble, We think of King David, who himself was a shepherd. And so often in the Old Testament, the kings of Judah were were likened to shepherds. That was the expectation. And the Messiah king would embody this humble godliness expected of the kings of God's people, but so rarely having happened. And do you notice there, fear not, John writes, as he's quoting Zechariah. Now what's interesting about that? is if you go to Zechariah chapter 9 and look at verses 9 and 10, you will most likely in your translation see this word, Rejoice, O daughters of Zion. Here, John, the apostle, takes that prophetic word from Zechariah 9 and very deliberately says, Fear not. Now here's why that matters so much. If you look at those rare moments where there would be what what theologians refer to as a theophany, an appearance of God, in a way that people could behold him, what does God or an angel of the Lord always say? Fear not. Fear not. You know how often those words come from God to his people? Fear not. It's good news that the eternal, all-powerful, mighty, holy, righteous God says to us so often and in so many ways, don't be afraid, fear not. And child of God, can you hear that today? Can you receive that from your king? Can you believe that from your king? Can you lean into those words from your king, fear not? Not. You know, by by putting these words to the prophecy of Zechariah, John is making a clear claim about Jesus. Here is yet another appearance of God Almighty. So fear not. And then we see John writing about himself here in verse 16. As he says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. 
But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. What things? These prophetic words. These words from Psalm 118. uh, These words from Zechariah chapter 9. These were about Jesus. Notice John's language. We didn't understand it at first. We didn't get it at first. But when Jesus was glorified. Now, in John's categories, what Jesus is making reference to there, or or what John is making reference to there, is his crucifixion. When John speaks about Jesus being glorified here, he's speaking about Jesus on the cross. Certainly he is including with that the resurrection and the ascension and Jesus' eternal holy session before the right hand of majesty. All of that is included, I'm quite sure. But first and foremost, we see the cross, first of all, as Jesus being glorified. And if you're a Christian, that begins to make something That begins to make a bit of sense, doesn't it? Remember, remember, I I think we mentioned this last week. There were some at the cross who even as Jesus dripped in blood at his shed body, having been put through the worst of, of Roman tortures and now hung upon a cross, one of the thieves dying next to him, what did he see? Somehow, by the grace of God, the scales fell from his eyes and he saw in this bloody mess of a man dying next to him, the king. Because he said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He was able to see in the crucified Jesus, the king. The Roman centurion who said, this surely is the son of God, said it as Jesus was dying. Not after the resurrection, but even as he was dying, he said it. Because by God's grace, the scales fell from his eyes and what he saw upon the cross was the king. What explains the fact that you who are Christians, when you heard the gospel, it was the best news you'd ever heard. It wasn't stupid. It wasn't offensive. It wasn't foolish. It was the best news you ever heard. Why? Because you heard the message of the cross and you saw your king. That's why. And once the disciples understood the cross, they saw that that was the place of his glory. And then all of this made sense. Make no mistake, the cross displayed the wickedness of sin more than anything ever had, but it also was the shining forth of the glory of Christ. It was there that he achieved our salvation. It was there that he made atonement. It was there where his blood was shed for our sins. And so many people missed it. They couldn't see. And the irony is that their expectations for their king were profoundly low. As much as their zeal was heightened at one point, actually their expectation was far too low. They were going to settle for political and national liberation, missing out on the liberation that they truly needed. Now, this is really important to remember that as the prophesied Messiah, Jesus was not a revolutionary or an insurrectionist seeking to undo what had come before him. He was the Messiah. That means he was the fulfillment of all that came before him. He was the substance behind all of the holy days that God had given to his people. He was the presence of God tabernacling among his people. He was the Passover lamb 
whose shed blood made a covering for sinners. He was the fulfillment of the law of Moses and the yes to all of God's gracious promises. He was the messianic king. Well, finally, look there again at verses 17 and 18. You see, once again, as John relates what was driving so much of the zeal around Jesus and the thousands of people that had gone out to meet him, to follow him into Jerusalem, was this remarkable miracle, the raising of Lazarus. Contrast that, then, with the continued hostility of the religious authorities. Do you see what they say in verse 19? So the Pharisees said to one another, and it's interesting how this is phrased, you see that you are gaining nothing. They're saying this to each other. No, you are not. Ah, you're not. You're not. Everything we've done has been a waste of time. He's still not in our custody. He's certainly still alive. All of our planning, all of our plotting, all of our motives, everything we've tried to do has not worked. And now look, the world has gone after him. The entire scene that was going on scandalized the religious authorities and filled them with this anger and this dread, had all of their plans to get Jesus, to stop Jesus, failed. Because after all, it looks like the whole world had gone. Now, why did they say the whole world has gone after him? Because as we're going to see in the next passage, even Greeks were there. Gentiles had showed up. They'd come from outside of Galilee. Because what? They heard that there was a man who was getting people out of the tombs. And so even Greeks were showing up. And they want to talk to Jesus. And Jesus meets with them and talks to them. Well, the Pharisees are looking at this and they're saying, not only has he gathered thousands of our own people, but even the Gentiles are coming. The whole world has gone after him. And they had no idea of the real significance of the words they spoke, did they? Because while they are saying, ah, in grief and frustration and in anger and in failure, they're saying the whole world has gone after him. We say, praise God, the whole world has gone after Jesus. And that's why his name is pronounced all around the world, on every continent, from the farthest flung nations in the world, the name of Jesus is held forth as Lord. God is not a regional deity. He does not belong to any one group or nation. By his dying and rising, Jesus purchased men and women from every nation, language, and people and tribe. Because of this, the reign of King Jesus knows no bounds. He does not belong to any one nation or culture. He is the king of the world, the king of the cosmos even. And what the crowds expected and what the religious authorities feared, a national leader come to lead an armed revolt against Rome was not the sort of king that Jesus came to be. He entered the city as a king, to be sure, but he came not as an earthly strong man, but as the humble son of David, the king who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He would lead a one-man insurrection against sin and death, conquering both by the shedding of his blood, and today men and women in vast vast numbers throughout the world have gone after him, the king of their salvation. Jesus was not just another king in a long line of fail and frail men. He is God in the flesh whose exaltation will take place on a cross as he 
lays down his life for sinners. The crucified and risen King, therefore, has the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is the King, I tell you. And so, beloved, do not miss your King. Do not miss Him because your heart is unyielding. Do not miss Him because your sin is too enticing. Do not miss Him because your expectations are idolatrous. We do not make Jesus King. And ultimately, not a one of us will be able to deny that He is the King. And so now is the time, and today is the day, to behold your King, to welcome Him. We hear the words of the prophet Isaiah a lot at this time of year when he foretold of the Messiah. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask that um, as your ransomed people, as the people who say Jesus is King, I pray, God, that you would grant that we would bow the knee before you, that we would see in you the King that is worthy of all of our loyalty, all of our trust, the King who can never, could never fail, the King who is all good at all times, and the King who is in control of all things at all times. Oh God, give us the grace that we would not fear. Give us the grace to believe in you, to trust you, and to live in light of the reality that you are king. Make it be so, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.